Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley, and we're listening to Boston Jazz. That's What Can I Say After I Say I'm Sorry, 1947 jazz piece performed by Boston's Crystal Tone label or or recorded on that label. Dick Vacker wrote this wrote the book on this literally. He's the author of the Boston Jazz Chronicles, Faces, Places, and Nightlife, 1937 to 1962. Dick, tell us all about that piece and why it's just such a great example of Boston's vibrancy in jazz. 1947 was an interesting year in Boston. It was an interesting year um, throughout jazz. Ray Borden was a trumpet player who had worked with a lot of famous name bands, Stan Kenton's primarily, and he organized this band uh, after the war, and this was a, a bad time to organize a big band. Big bands were failing. They were falling apart right and left. You couldn't afford to run them, and, and it was a hard, hard way to make a living. But he put this band together, a very well-rehearsed, well-drilled, well-practiced band, and... It, they made this series of records for this little label in Boston called Crystal Tone, and I thought they were wonderful records, which have disappeared, as much of Boston jazz has. This is from a 78, as a matter of fact. You yes, might want to tell people what a 78 is. <laughs> <laughs> it is a 10-inch shellac record with a little hole in the center that plays at 78 revolutions per minute. They were the way that music was sold and purchased into the early 1950s. One of the things that you say in your book, and you make clear that the story of jazz uh, is really a story of America and, you know, specifically what's happening in Boston as well. So a little bit of what was going on in the country that helped to create Boston's jazz scene, if you would, Dick Vaca. The thing that really distinguishes Boston for me, and as opposed to the rest of the country, is the GI Bill. I think that it's a fascinating thing that jazz was coming off a period of time where it was America's popular music, the swing era and the big band era, and that is as close as jazz comes to being America's popular music. When jazz becomes more complex, starting with bebop music, when it becomes more complex, it starts losing its listeners. They want a, a simpler music, an easier music. And so they wanted to, you know, they wanted to dance. But the GI Bill period, uh, there were many, many musicians who were flocking to Boston to take advantage of the GI Bill, and they were very famous names, G.G. Grice and Sam Rivers and, and various others who uh, combined with the local musicians to form a very powerful scene. And I think that is something, I don't see that in other cities as much, the GI Bill influence, because Boston can outschool anybody, and could in those days too. So I see that as being a real distinguishing characteristic of what made Boston, Boston. Okay. Uh, the dean of Boston's jazz scene, WGBH's own Eric Jackson, is also with us here in Studio 3. Eric, uh, one of the things that Dick does so beautifully in his book is identify some of the folks, the faces of people who were so important. One of those was Sabby Lewis. I want to play a little clip of the Sabby Lewis Orchestra and then come back and have you talk about okay. uh, his importance in the Boston jazz scene. Okay. Okay, so that's called Boston Bounce, Eric, and I can hear the bounce in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also from a 78, if people can hear that sort of hiss and scratch from that from that album. Who was Sabby Lewis and why was he so important? Well, first of all, I should add, we have a recording that Sabby made in one of the last years of his life here uh, as a live performance on our show. So he was still playing right up mm -hmm. until the time that uh, he passed away. And also, Sabby was the first African-American radio announcer in in the city of Boston. Wow. Uh, so that was sometime in 19, the 1950s, and he was on the station that would become WILD as a radio announcer, too, as a matter of fact. But Sabby uh, just put together a... I believe it was a nine-piece band to get things started, and the band grew into a larger unit from there. He became friends with a man named Dean Earle, 
who was a wonderful piano player here in the area, and they sort of swapped uh, arrangements. And then Sabby's band became the kind of band that had a reputation so that all of the, uh, uh, I shouldn't say all, but many of the uh, wonderful musicians who lived here in Boston wanted to be a part of that band. He also was able to record and receive some sort of national success in the 1940s, which actually took him to New York for a short period of time. And then he came back here uh, to Boston after that. But part of it was that he was able to achieve a measure of national success uh, with his band, too. Uh, I know lots of folks want to get in on this conversation, and they can at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. We have the experts here. If you have a question about a musician, about a jazz club, about an urban jazz myth that needs some fact-checking, we're at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. You can write to our Facebook page or send me a tweet at Callie Crossley, and I am here with Dick Vaca, who wrote the book Boston Jazz Chronicles, Faces, Places, and Nightlife, 1937 to 1962, and the dean of Boston's jazz scene, WGBH's own Eric Jackson. Uh, Eric, uh, back to you. One of the things that Dick makes clear in his book, which I guess makes sense as you think about it, that there were three things, he says, that uh, really helped to boost that jazz scene during the period of time that he chronicles. Mm-hmm. Music promoters, Boston as a center for music education, Education and the proximity to New York. And uh, I wonder if you talk about music promoters. Well, mm. of course, you could always start off just by mentioning the name of George Ween, who, of course, became major. Uh, but I think he starts off, and I, I've never heard these guys' names pronounced, so I may have pronounced it the correct, uh, incorrectly. It's the Shribmans, the Shribmans, who were actually even as early as the 1920s uh, owned uh, a number of uh, concert halls, I guess you'd call them, and pr- promoted big bands. Duke Ellington's band was extremely popular in New England in the 1920s, partially because the Shribmans had a uh, circuit of, of their own uh, dance halls or concert halls where they would bring uh, Duke in, and you didn't have to travel uh, long distances. You could play in Boston and then play in Salem, say, tomorrow night, and it would all be part of the same circuit. So it wasn't the, you know, play here and then drive 300 miles to your next gig. Uh, so it was a popular circuit uh, for musicians uh, to be on. So the, I'd say you have Shribman, you've got uh, George Ween, they would certainly be two uh, major movies when it comes to uh, promoting this music uh, in the area. And I think even down to the t- today, uh, we can't overlook the, uh, uh, the influence of Fred Taylor, who has certainly been active in the business uh, since, I guess, the early 50s when he recorded Dave Brubeck. And since then, of course, he owned the old jazz workshop. He books for scholars. He's booked uh, most of the major jazz festivals in the Northeast at one time or the other. So that he's obviously a major powerhouse when it comes to booking music. And the the, the good thing, the positive thing I'd say about uh, Fred, or another positive thing I'd say about Fred, is that uh, most of the musicians that I know like Fred. Oh, that's good. That's important. Yeah, that is important. important. That is important because you don't want to play it for for folks. Uh, I just want to highlight George Ween's name again because some people may know that he, Dick Vaca, is connected to the Newport Jazz Festival, that that was, you know, his idea and founding of that sort of grew out of his interest, I guess, from uh, promoting all these jazz artists uh, during this period of time when Boston was most vibrant. He was the founder of that festival in 1954. And he had its... Hard to describe the number of activities that George Ween had going on in the 1950s. It's hard to say that the Newport Jazz Festival was just another pretty face for him, but that's what it was. He was a newspaper columnist. He had a weekly column in the Boston Herald. He had a television show for a short time in 1958. He was a disc jockey on one of the AM stations from 1956 until he left town in 1960. He started an outdoor music festival in Ipswich, a summer concert series. He was an instructor at Boston University, instructing in jazz history, and he had he had an activity. Uh, he had two clubs. He had a, he had Storyville, his most famous club, the one that's on the cover of the book, and he had a second club down in the basement called Mahogany Hall, which was playing uh, strictly Dixieland type music. Hmm. So he had all these different things going on. You can't. He was 
the man of the I call him the man of the decade for the 1950s. That he was the most important figure in Boston jazz in the 1950s, as Sabby Lewis had been the most important figure in the 1940s. All right, let's play a little bit more music. This is uh, Autumn in New York. Uh, 1949. I want to get you guys to uh, respond to it. This is a piece that a lot of people may recognize the tune. <laughs> about this song is uh, distinctive or important? Either one, Dick or... Charlie Mariano, okay. the man who's okay. playing the alto saxophone okay. from the Hyde Park Marianos. He was uh, a Boston... Uh, he was born in Boston. His family lived in Hyde Park. He went... He was very influenced by the great Boston alto player Johnny Hodges, the fellow who played with Duke Ellington for so many years. In World War II, he... He, Mariano, spent time in an Air Force, an Army Air Force band out in California. He heard Charlie Parker for the first time and decided that bebop was something he needed to do. So when you listen to Autumn in New York, you can still hear the influence of Johnny Hodges, but you can also hear the coming influence of Charlie Parker on Charlie Mariano's playing. And I think Charlie Mariano is one of the most influential musicians that ever called his city home. Oh, wow. He also sort of changed uh, his music. I believe he was at Berkeley till uh, late '60s or early '70s, and then he, uh, after that, he spent a lot of time in Europe, where his music took a very different direction. I think when it went to Europe, a lot of his uh, uses a lot of electronics hmm. uh, around him, uh, electric keyboards, or even just sort of electric sounds. I don't know if you call it keyboards or what they are, but his music became very different during his days uh, in Europe. I remember just in the early 70s, I think it was, he put out an album with a group called Osmosis, and I was sort of shocked. This this is Charlie Mariano, Osmosis? This sounds very different from uh, what uh, I was expecting from Charlie Mariano. So he, so he was a man that could actually, you know pick up what was happening in the air and incorporate it in his music. He did. He definitely did. He definitely did. I think I think that was uh, part of what a lot of people liked about him, although as with anybody who makes a change in their music, there are also some people sit on the sidelines and mumble and say, we should go back to the old stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I've probably been one of those. <laughs> We're talking about jazz, about Boston jazz with Eric Jackson, host of Jazz on WGBH with Eric Jackson, and Dick Vaca, the author of the Boston Jazz Chronicles, which focuses on the late 1930s through the early 1960s here in Boston. Join the conversation at 877-301-8970. 877-301-8970. Here are two of the best jazz experts right here in Studio 3. Call if you want to know what happened to one of your favorite jazz clubs. Call if you want to know whatever happened to those great local jazz combos. 877-301-8970. 877-301-8970. And, and, yeah. and you can write to our Facebook page or send us a tweet at Callie Crossley. This is WGBH. WGBH programs exist because of you and one SIM card mobile voice text and data service for budget conscious international travelers. One SIM card lets you manage the expense of using your cell phone while traveling in over 200 countries without any commitments. Online at onesimcard.com and direct tire and auto service. Well, I'm convinced that WGBH is like a cult. Barry Steinberg, President. WGBH listeners are passionate about the station. A lot of our clients come in and thank us for sponsoring WGBH. They appreciate the fact that we've acknowledged the importance of WGBH in the Boston community, and they support us because we support the station. That's the truth. To learn more, visit WGBH.org slash sponsorship. On Radio Lab, you'll hear a lot of this. No. This whole notion is totally wrong. Really? But, but I, I thought... No. 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 But wait, wait, wait. Uh, wait. Not quite. But Einstein tells you... Uh, that to me just seems... Uh, but... Uh, so... Jeez. Uh, Come on. But you'll also hear a lot of this. Yes. I think that's absolutely right. Oh. Yeah. That's right. That's the ticket. Tune in to Radio Lab to hear us grapple with and sometimes understand the world's mysteries. 
Saturday afternoon at 2 here on WGBH Radio. Support WGBH right now and you'll automatically be entered to win a trip to England. Make an online gift and you and a guest could be going to visit High Clear Castle, referred to on Masterpiece simply as Downton Abbey. Prize includes round-trip airfare from Lufthansa, four-night stay at the Vineyard at Stockcross, and a private tour of High Clear Castle led by the Lady of the House, Fiona, Countess of Carnarvon. For a chance to win, visit WGBH.org. Great question. That is a great question. And that's a great question. It's a great question. What a great question. On Fresh Air, you'll hear unexpected questions and unexpected answers. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. We're listening to Boston Jazz. This is Bluegrass, performed by the Herb Pomeroy Orchestra. We have Boston Jazz experts here in Studio 3. Dick Vaca is the author of the Boston Jazz Chronicles, and WGBH's own Eric Jackson, the dean of the Boston Jazz scene, is also with us. Join us at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. Who do you remember from the Boston Jazz scene? Who do you want to know about? Give us a call. We're at 877 877- 301-8970, 877-301-8970. You can write to our Facebook page or send me a tweet at Callie Crossley. Uh, now, before we paused, we were talking about the kind of uh, innovative incorporation, if you will, of a Charlie Mariano who listened, moved around in different places and, and incorporated that in his music. And I got a sense, Dick, from your book that overall... Boston was kind of an incubator for experimentation among jazz musicians during this time. Could you speak about that? That's, uh, that's a good point. It was an incubator. As I said uh, a little earlier, that late 40s period where uh, many, many people were coming to Boston, they were all coming and they were all bringing ideas and they were all bringing new ideas. It's when you compare the Boston jazz scene uh, to other northern cities like Chicago's or Detroit's, uh, one thing is uh, very apparent. Boston's black population where jazz was nurtured was much smaller than populations in Detroit or Cleveland or Chicago. And there were enough good musicians here to start and nurture a jazz scene, but they really couldn't build it. It really couldn't grow. There just wasn't enough people power. When the GI Bill people started arriving in 46, 47, 48, it really provided the critical mass. And that's when an explosion happened and that's when the incubator happened. So we talked about the Ray Borden band at the beginning of the show. That band, Nat Pierce took that band over and it became very famous. That was an incubator. This is uh, a band that had 10 people in it who went on to very long careers. There was a band completely forgotten now, started by a guy named Jimmy Martin, which had another 10, 12 people who went on to very long careers in jazz. So if you're talking about incubators, you have those two bands alone. And the number of names that cycle through these bands is very impressive. And then we get to Herb Pomeroy, which was the culmination of all of it in the early 50s. And that was a serious incubator band. Uh, and this was really before he became, you know, the Berkeley uh, professor that, that a lot of people know him for, remember him for. Uh, let's take a call. Fran from Newport. Uh, go ahead, please. You're on the Cali Crossley Show, 89.7. Yeah, hi. When does Alan Dawson show up on the scene? Because, boy, he created, uh, he turned uh, Boston into the Mecca, being the greatest drum instructor in the history of uh, jazz. Um, and all those people that came after, you know, Tony Williams and all the great jazz drummers. When does, uh, when does he uh, show up on the scene? You'll be happy to know that Dick Vaca has a lot about Alan Dawson in this book, but I'm going to let Eric Jackson speak to uh, Alan Dawson and his place in history, in Boston jazz history. Well, I was just actually going over Dick's book uh, yesterday, too, and uh, he shows uh, Alan showing up in the uh, late 1940s and starts playing there in the 40s. I think one of the things that um, is important about Alan is that he stayed in Boston. I mean, he did go out on the road but he stayed here 
a lot of musicians want to go out on the road and that's what they want to do. Alan was a guy who wanted to stay in Boston and so he was uh, on the faculty at Berkeley and he did teach um, so many uh, people from that uh, position. There are a lot of people who, you know, in, in fact, it's probably one of the one of my pet peeves is that there are a number of people who say, oh, he's in, from Boston. Oh, he's a local guy. And they mean that in some uh, demeaning way. Right, yes, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And to me, Alan was a world class musician who happened to live, I think, in West Medford. Uh, and yet he was able to teach so many people uh, about this music from from uh, Boston. He's such an influential player. Incidentally, I remember walking into a club once uh, with Miles Davis and Alan Dawson was on the bandstand and Miles' first question to me was, who's that? In Miles' voice. (laughs) And I said, Miles, that's Alan Dawson. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, well, to your point, I've got a piece here with uh, featuring Alan Dawson, so uh, why don't we take a little listen to it because uh, to Fran's question, uh, he came on the scene late and this is from 1958 from the Al Vega Trio, Gypsy in My Soul. Um, Gypsy in My Soul. Um, while we're listening to this, Alan Dawson was on the Berkeley faculty as, as, at this time of the re- of this recording. He was only uh, he was one of a number, I should say, of Boston jazz musicians who joined the faculty at Berkeley over a very short period of time. Um, 1955 is when Pomeroy went to Berkeley. 1957, Ray Santisi, who's still playing piano around Boston, joined the faculty in '57. He's still at Berkeley. Uh, Alan Dawson joined the faculty in '57, uh, and the and the list went on from there. So there's another incubator for you, is uh, the Berkeley School, and Alan is uh, I can only second what what Eric just said. He played with every influential band leader in the city of Boston, starting with Sabby Lewis. He was a key member of Sabby's early '50s bands. Uh, he played with Pomeroy. He played with Jimmy Tyler, who's uh, another name that we'll probably get to. So he was a very influential drummer, and he uh, he's just one of a number of very, very good drummers that could call this city home. Okay, let's take a call. Lynn from Hancock, New Hampshire. Go ahead, please. You're on the Callie Crossley Show. What a pleasure, Callie. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I wonder if uh, Eric or your other guests know whatever became of the Bradford Ballroom. I think it was on Tremont Street. I saw Miles there dueling with uh, Mike Stern, who was playing guitar more like Jimi Hendrix than how he plays these days. But anyway, it was a stable club. What happened? Well, you know, Dick's book is all about these clubs. So, Dick, go ahead. (laughs) The Bradford Ballroom is, of course, a part of the Bradford Hotel, which is, I don't know which chain hotel right. it now is, right. but it's uh, it's across the street from the Wang Center on Tremont Street downtown, and they had numerous clubs. They had clubs in the basement, nightclubs in the basement. They had uh, Dancing Under the Stars in the warm weather on the roof, and they had the ballroom, which was uh, when the ballroom era ended. The Bradford Ballroom was the largest place you could have music in the city of Boston. And they don't have music there anymore, I'm sorry to say. It is now given over completely to uh, corporate events, conferences, and seminars, and so forth. Well, that's sacrilegious, considering (laughs) who was was there on stage and doing so fantastically well. Well, thanks for the answer. I'm not happy with it, but (laughs) I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the call, uh, Lynn. Mm -hmm. You're very welcome. Some of that goes back to what I said about Fred Taylor, too. Fred Taylor's relationship 
with uh, Miles Davis in particular. He was, and I said, musicians were friends with Fred. Miles and Fred were close friends, and uh, uh, Fred was able to get uh, Miles to perform at times when no one else could get him to perform. Fred Taylor, the promoter. Yes, yes. yes. Uh-huh. And so he was the one who was responsible for Miles playing there at the uh, Bradford Ballroom. Yes, I was there. I heard those concerts. Yeah. All right. You were <laughs> lucky, too. Matter, right. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH and online at WGBH.org. I'm Callie Crossley. We're talking about Boston's jazz history with WGBH's Eric Jackson and Dick Vaca, author of the Boston Jazz Chronicles. We have a tweet. Gretchen wants to know, can you talk about Jimmy McHugh from JP, a Boston-born legend? Both people in the studio here, you'll be happy to know Gretchen are smiling. Eric and Dick. Dick, you want to start off? No, you're good. Right. Uh, Jimmy McHugh was born in Jamaica Plain in, I think, 1893. And he was a song plugger in the Irving Berlin organization. His job was to take sheet music and go to any place, any place where music was being played. So he played in ballparks and restaurants and fairs and festivals. There was no radio. There were no movies. The only way you could pitch a song was to sit down at a piano and play it, and that's what McHugh did. He was a plugger for Irving Berlin. He was an office boy at the Boston Opera House, the old one on Huntington Avenue, and so he used to run errands for Caruso and Toscanini and the greats in the opera world when they came through town. Hmm. In about 1920, he went to New York City, and he discovered Duke Ellington's orchestra. Of course, Duke Ellington had been playing, but Jimmy McHugh was writing reviews for the Cotton Club, and he brought Ellington's band into the club. And from there, he went off to write some 500 songs um, on the sunny side of the street, uh, exactly like you, Don't Blame Me, Let's Get Lost, uh, songs and songs and songs. And he continued to write songs up until the time of his death in 1969 in Beverly Hills, California. So the guy who wrote On the Sunny Side of the Street, Eric, was from J.P.? Isn't that something? Isn't that something? <laughs> wow. You, you know, I, I just want to make it clear to the audience that uh, – and I wrote this on the back of Dick's book – uh, I said, this is the book we've been waiting for. So I yield to Dick when it comes to uh, being an expert about this topic. I, it it was a, a subject that uh, was dear to me, but I can't say that I knew a lot about this, uh, the Boston jazz scene, the history going back through those years. And so I really was very happy when Dick tackled this topic and put out a wonderful book to cover this topic. A lot of this, uh, the information that Dick has in this book, I didn't know. Oh, so, okay. uh, you know, this is a, this book is a learning uh, tool stump you. That's for something. me too. <laughs> <laughs> so. well, we're at 877 877-301-8970. Call in and talk to both Eric Jackson, dean of the Boston Jazz Scene, who confesses that he yields to Dick Vaca (laughs) on details about the Boston jazz history. And Dick Vaca is in the studio with us. So one thing I want to get on the table, because there's a lot of discussion about this, and I think it speaks to the underpinning of your book, which is why we don't know a lot about this and think of Boston as a jazz city. Uh, You make the point that there was no sound, no Boston jazz sound, because every style was played here. Could you both talk to that a little bit? Go ahead, Dick. Um, There was, I asked specifically, I asked a lot of the people I interviewed, was there a Boston sound? And they all said, no, not really. Uh, There was, it was very good modern jazz, and it was very well played, and it was especially well written and well arranged. This was a town that was really, really turning out good arrangers and, and writers. Um, but it, but it was not anything that really stands out. I think that, uh, Boston is one of a number of cities that suffers in comparison to New York City, which is the jazz capital of the world, and New Orleans, which everyone credits as being, whether it's right or wrong, it's credited with being the birthplace of jazz. So, 
every city suffers in comparison to those cities. There, you know, there are some key. The the story of jazz is jazz starts in New Orleans and it goes up the river to Chicago and it gets to Kansas City and then it goes to New we'll York. Stop in Memphis, but I'm just saying, keep going. I'm from Memphis. Go on. <laughs> A few people stopped in Memphis. Okay. And uh, but there is there is really no oxygen in the room for the other cities that have jazz stories, and they all do. Baltimore and Detroit. Detroit's story is just as good as just as long as Boston's. So I think that's part of the problem is that there's just no no attention given to any place that isn't New York and New Orleans. So when we talk about styles of jazz, I think that confuses people. Um, you know, I all I can say is big band and bebop. That's about all I know in my vocabulary. But there are many styles. I, I, uh, I generally say that certainly through the 1960s, uh, uh, certainly through 1950, there's probably at least a style a decade. And then in the 50s and 60s, it probably increases. There are probably even more styles. You could, you could say in the 1920s, you have the, uh, uh, what we might call New Orleans jazz. And then we have the transformation with what some might call Chicago jazz. The emphasis on New Orleans jazz is more on a collective uh, improvisation playing from the ensemble. The Chicago jazz, the emphasis goes more on to the soloist uh, in the 30s. These, these are r- rough uh, borders that mm-hmm. I'm, I'm dealing with. In the 30s, we find more of what we call swing music and the big bands are associated with the 30s. In the 40s, we might uh, say that uh, we see the coming uh, bebop and at the end of the 40s, we find uh, cool jazz, jazz, which really takes off in the 50s. Also in the 50s, you get what was known as hard bop. Uh, you get the emergence of modal jazz. You get the emergence of so-called avant-garde. Or, uh, for these all come up in the 60s. In the 70s, uh, you probably – all of those – most of those forms are still con- continuing. They, they, were, they were active in the 50s and 60s. So during the period of time of Dick's book, there's a lot of different styles as you've articulated right, and right. everybody's playing everything here. Right, right. Yes, so so yes. Boston didn't come out with like this is the, the town for bebop. It came out with, well, there's bebop and there's the other stuff too. But somebody yeah. said something yeah. to me uh, once – years ago, I was asked to write an article on Boston Jazz for uh, Boston Magazine. And I interviewed uh, Bill Lowe, and one of the things he talked to me about was how we can't uh, overlook Boston because although we know of these people who left Boston, but they were trained here in Boston, they contributed to the Boston scene and then went on, but we still have an ongoing jazz scene here in Boston. As I think Dick used the mm-hmm. word nurturing. We had a scene, we have a scene that nurtures even if you can move on. There are people here you learn from, people here you play with, and that's so, uh, important to the music, you know? Uh, let's listen to uh, another piece. This is uh, Serge Shaloff Sextet from the uh, uh, the album Boston Blow Up in 1955. This piece is Body and Soul. <laughs> Ooh, this is so smooth, Eric. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Incidentally, his mother was a very well-known uh, piano uh Instructor, is that the right word to use? Madame Shaloff. And a lot of people, even even jazz musicians, studied with uh, Madame Shaloff. Uh, but unfortunately, he had his problems, uh, as a number of musicians did, with heroin. Yeah. And they, um, from time to time, affected his career. And he had uh, problems because of that, too. Did a lot of people uh, who work with him in Boston, Dick, uh, go on, took something from him and went on to do bigger and better things? He influenced um, just about every baritone player that came after the 50s, whether they were in Boston or anywhere else. He was really the first baritone saxophone player who was able to master bebop 
on the big horn. It was a very difficult thing to do. So he influences a lot of, of, of baritone players. In terms of Boston, he hired quite a few young musicians and worked with them and took them on the road. Eric mentioned his problem with uh, narcotics, and uh, he committed himself to Bridgewater State Hospital, and he was there for quite some time. And when he came out, he was clean, and he organized new bands. He recorded this particular Boston blow-up record and another one after that. Uh, but just when things were looking very sunny for him, he got cancer, mm, and, mm. and it didn't take very long for it to kill him. He died in 1957. But he was an enormously influential player with Woody Herman and with other big bands before that. So, so he was really a transitional character who went from the height of the big band swing era into the bebop era and even beyond a little bit. And as you heard, he plays a lovely ballad. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we got much more to talk about, and we're taking your calls when, after this pause. We're talking about the Boston jazz scene with the focus on the late 1930s through the early 60s. Boston jazz historian Dick Vaca is here. He was just speaking. He's the author of the Boston Jazz Chronicles, and WGBH's own Eric Jackson is also with us. Join the conversation at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. Who, just, who is a Boston jazz musician. Really? We'll find that out. We come back. You're listening to WGBH Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you and Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, offering complete health care for you and your family. With 21 locations across greater Boston, Harvard Vanguard welcomes new patients and accepts most insurance. CareMadeEasy.org, an affiliate of Atrius Health. And Skinner Auctioneers and Appraisers, presenting their auction of 20th Century Design, Saturday, June 23rd, featuring works by Tiffany, George Jensen, and George Nakashima. Online bidding available at SkinnerInc.com. And the members of the WGBH Sustainer Program, whose gifts of $5, 10 or $20 a month make up the most reliable income for the programs you love on 89.7. Learn more about sustaining membership at WGBH.org. On the next Fresh Air, screenwriter and director Lynn Shelton talks about her new film, Your Sister's Sister, starring Emily Blunt, Rosemary DeWitt, and Mark Duplass. She also directed the indie film Hump Day and the episode of Mad Men from season four in which Joan considers having an abortion. Join us. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. The WGBH June Community Campaign is over. Yahoo! And you are responsible for all of its success. For other ways to support your community through WGBH, visit WGBH.org slash volunteer. And thanks. Context beyond the headlines. Issues you want to know more about. Stories you'll want to share. News and depth. Online at WGBHnews.org. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. We're listening to Yellow Tango. This is Danvers native Dick Twarzik on piano in this 1955 recording. Joining me to talk about Boston's jazz history are Dick Vaca, author of the Boston Jazz Chronicles, and WGBH's own Eric Jackson, dean of the Boston jazz scene. You can join us at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. Bobby from Somerville, go ahead, please. You're on the Cali Crossley Show, 89.7. Yes, hi. Uh, I wondered if your speakers could talk a little bit about Charlie Binakis. He may be a little-known name, but I think he was responsible for a lot of great Boston musicians. Dick Vaca is nodding his head. Go ahead. Okay. (laughs) I can't talk much about Charlie. I do know that he was an enormously influential figure. He was a teacher, I think, at both the New England Conservatory and at Berkeley. Uh, He passed not too many years back, and uh, one of his proudest students, Daniel Perez, uh, Mm. organized a fairly big memorial concert for Charlie. 
but but I personally don't know too much about him. I hate to wimp out on you, but he's a little late for me. Oh, okay. I I could say that uh, I I never met him, but the number of musicians who used to come through the studio for me to interview who would mention his name and mention that they studied with him was just amazing. I mean, you know, uh, um, it it didn't seem to matter what instrument they played. They all said they studied with... uh, with Charlie, they all talked about his ability to be able to uh, listen to you play, and then that he would be able to uh, find something to help you improve on the way you were playing in the direction that you wanted to play. He wasn't interested in telling you, no, you're playing this wrong. You've got to go in a whole different direction. He was interested in hearing what you were doing and say, uh, well, let's, uh, you know, here's how you can go in that direction uh, and do it better. Uh, you know, so I think he he is. I have always called him a sort of legendary figure because I never met him, but so many musicians well, talked about him, about him when they came in to do interviews with me. Thanks for the question, Bobby. Good one. Uh, so, Dick, in your book, you're very careful to distinguish who you think is a Boston jazz musician. Say so there's some characteristics, some criteria. Uh, we've talked about people who've come in and out, how Boston was an incubator, how there's no sound per se because all styles were played here. Who's a Boston music, jazz musician? There's two kinds of Boston jazz musicians. There's ones who were born here by accident of birth. This just happens to be where they're from. And there are ones who came here. Now, uh, there are very famous jazz musicians, Johnny Hodges, Harry Carney, who were born here. But before they were old enough to vote, they were already on the way to New York. And they spent their entire jazz career um, outside the city of Boston. There are other musicians like Vic Dickinson, the trombonist, or Frankie Newton, the trumpeter, who were uh, considered New York musicians, but they actually spent years, literally years, in Boston. So I think a Boston jazz musician is somebody who played here for a significant portion of their career, or they were here as teachers, as mentors, as trainers. So I throw out the accident by birth people. I don't really consider them to be Boston jazz musicians. I think uh, time time on the street here is what matters. You know what I think is funny, though? Um, there's Roy Haynes, who was from Boston, born here in Boston. Uh, but uh, And people still say Boston's own Roy Haynes. He left Boston in 1945. You know, but uh, but we still we still cling to uh, Roy Haynes. I don't know if the, off the top of my head I can't think of any other names like that. But uh, Roy is still thought of as Boston's own Roy Haynes, and he hasn't lived here since before I was born. So. And it's funny because that's how I learned about him was Boston. He's right, from Boston, right. Boston Roy Haynes. Right, right. Um, it, something that always comes up when we have these discussions about you know past jazz history is where is Boston's jazz scene now? How vibrant is it? Is Are there still those threads from the period that you chronicle in your book, Dick Vaca? And um, is it a new kind of thing happening here in Boston? Are people still finding it an incubator? Uh, you can start, uh, Eric, and then we'll go over to Derek. Well, I think uh, <laughs> the emergence of uh, Berkeley in the 40s and the conter- conservatories, especially their jazz department, uh, about what nineteen sixty eight or somewhere around then uh were both very important to the jazz scene um they both uh caused people to come here uh you know so they add to the richness of that scene some stay others uh are the people who actually live in New York, but they come up two or three days a week to teach here so I think that in that sense, you still have uh, contributions from Boston uh, going out into the world. You st- you still also have so many musicians who are coming from uh, Boston. I was just uh, doing some writing on a saxophonist uh, who comes from Boston, Jerry Berganzi, and we were talking. I was talking to Jerry about another saxophonist who comes from Boston, George Garzon. These are two. Uh, fairly well known in the jazz world, uh, saxophones who are right here from Boston, live here in Boston, 
Um, I guess George has gone to New York. I'm not sure. Jerry lived in New York for a while, but came back home mm-hmm. to Boston. He's on the faculty now at New England Conservatory. So he's making his mark as a player, but he's also making his uh, imprint as a teacher. And that's what I think uh, Boston has that sort of dual role in general. They're, they're, they're players who go out into the world and they're uh, the, the teachers who teach the students. And then uh, we, we mentioned Danilo Perez. That's mm-hmm. another one. He's from Panama, but he lives right here in the Boston area and teaches at Berkeley. So he's... And very well known. People, right, yeah, right, right. Very Going well out respected. and doing both, both, both jobs there. Uh, so many of the places that you name, uh, well, all of the places you name in your book are pretty gone, uh, Dick Vaca. And a lot of people want to know, you know, where do you go now? I mean, I think about Scholars and Regatta Bar in Cambridge, of course. There are other venues. But in terms of, and there are some who believe that, that jazz is kind of a, a background music now, but not center stage in many venues, doesn't have hold the same interest as it once did. What's your take? Well, first, I do have to say that one club that I was writing about in this book is still offering jazz 365 days a year, and that's our Wally's down on Mass Wally's, Ave in Columbus. I stand corrected. On the jazz corner that's of right. Boston. And uh, But other than that, all the rest of them, as you say, they're gone. Uh, I really uh, have mixed feelings when I think about where jazz is now because I just finished writing this great book and uh, much of the book is taken up with the 50s, which is sort of the golden decade. And we'll never have the 50s again. And I look at the offerings in the clubs and there's just not as much. I think it's very hard to make a living with jazz. I think you could probably get Fred Taylor in here and he'll talk to you about that. But I think that even Fred, who used to book jazz exclusively, has had to mix it up with world music and other kinds of other kinds of music in order to keep... To keep the seats in his club filled. So it's it's tough, and I don't see it on television. I don't hear nearly as much of it on the radio as even in the years I've been living in Boston, the amount of jazz on the radio has, has diminished. So I think uh, it'll never die. You know, That's just not what's going to happen. But it is harder to find it. It is harder to hear it. And sometimes it can be pricey. You know? So it's it's priced out of some people's budgets. In a place like Boston, is it is it there more opportunity then, Eric, for you know Boston to be sustained? Because Dick makes the point that it never grew here as a scene, but it was also always sustainable. Well, I think <laughs> you know one of the things that, uh, and I, I don't know if I'm patting myself on the back, but one of the things that I've always thought that uh, is important to the music is radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, radio is the way that we can hear the music, Absolutely. not really for free, but uh, sort of for free. It's there. You turn it on and you hear the the music coming to you. So I think that's, that's very important. I've also said that I like outdoor performances on the street corner or places like that because, you know, if you have music in a club or even in a library, you've got to get the people in the door to hear the music. You know, even if it's free, again, Mm. you still have to get the people in the door. So that idea where people can hear it when they're just walking by, whether it's a radio or music out on the corner, to me is so very important uh, to the music. Years ago, Steve Schwartz from here at WGBH was hosting a panel um, at a jazz conference and there were a bunch of old uh, jazz radio announcers on the panel. And um, Steve uh, made the comment, well, uh, most of us got into listening to jazz uh, f- from the radio. Is is that true? And he went down the panel and everybody on the panel said, yes, yes, that's true. Of course, my father was on the panel. Mm. And because there's a sign up there that says no swearing, I won't say exactly what my father <laughs> said. But okay. he said there was no radio uh, when I was born. He mm. remembered it. Uh, his sister cranking the yeah. Victrola and playing it for him. But but for most of us, that is how we got into the... We were able to hear it on the radio. The stories of so many people who would uh, sneak into their bedroom or g- get in their bedroom when they were supposed to be sleeping with the radio under the covers or something like that, uh, listening to their, to their music is so very important. So to me, that's why it's so very important that this music is on the radio. That's the best teacher that we have. Exposure. 
That's the best teacher that we have uh, for this music. And that's why it's such a problem with the reduction of hours uh, from, for jazz uh, from the radio. Uh, yeah, I agree that the radio is a very important part. And we should note that they're around here anyway. Again, Boston remains vibrant in some ways that possibly in other cities it doesn't. I think about Berkeley. I think about, you know, the Harvard Jazz Program. So there's young people involved right. in this music, right. and they're very good. Right. Um, Esperanza Spalding right mm-hmm. over here at, at uh, Berkeley mm-hmm. winning all kinds of awards and bringing attention to a form that, you know, some people might have thought that someone her age would not be interested in or be creative in and vibrant. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned in your book that I thought was interesting and just uh, just a quick response to was that segregation had an impact on those clubs back in the time and the, and how that music, how musicians got together and played and all of that. But it it seemed to work out for good uh, in this situation because musicians found each other, Dick Vaca, and played together no matter what. Boston did better than a lot of other cities did in that regard. And that is one thing that I was surprised to find. As I was doing the research, I found a history of integrated bands in Boston um, going back to the very first years of of the research I was doing. And... when you get into the 50s, when you get into the real flowering of modern jazz and a lot of the players whose songs we've been listening to here, all of those were integrated bands, every one of them. And uh, the band of Serge Chaloff, the band of Herb Pomeroy, uh, they, were all, they, were, they were all integrated bands. Should be noted, was, at a time when the country wasn't. At a time when, <laughs> at a time when Boston was, was, wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the clubs that... that um, they were all in entertainment districts and the entertainment districts tended to be on the main drags where if there was going to be mixing going on in the city, it would be happening on those main drags anyway, on Mass Ave, on Tremont Street, on Columbus Ave. So in some respects, Boston made out better than a lot of other cities in terms of, uh, in, in terms of the segregation and um, I, I think that's all to the good. I think that the music – was much better because of it. I think the culmination of this was Herb Pomeroy's band in the 50s with Joe Gordon and Lenny Johnson and John Neves. And uh, you couldn't have made that band happen without those without those guys. Absolutely. So Boston's on the map now, Eric Jackson. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's been on the map uh, for a while. I think that the people who know the music know it because of the people who come from here and the people who go here. I think, that, again, I said that before, it's, it, it's, there's two poles, and I think Boston contributes to the jazz scene by, on both ends. But Dick Vaca now put it down on paper, so yes, now we know goodness. for sure. Thank goodness. <laughs> thank goodness indeed. Thank you both for a very rich conversation about Boston's jazz history and a town that sometimes people overlook when we talk about this vibrant music and its history. We've been talking about Boston's jazz history with Eric Jackson, host of Jazz on WGBH with Eric Jackson, and Dick Vaca, author of the Boston Jazz Chronicles, Faces, Places, and Nightlife, 1937 to 1962. You can keep on top of the Callie Crossley show at WGBH.org slash Callie Crossley. Follow us on Twitter and become a fan of the Callie Crossley show on Facebook. Today's show was engineered by Jane Pippick, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzica. Our intern is Sloane Piva. We're a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio.